Hi, you're listening to Cool Heads, a Deadwood podcast and movie film. My name is Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. And today we're going to discuss the ninth episode of season two of Deadwood, which is Amalgamation and Capital. Um, so first of all, just want to say last week, we were both right about the meaning of the title. <laughs> um, it is about, uh, well, the episode at least is, is about um, uh, the turning of the territory into a potential annexation of the United States or in some form becoming part of the United States formally as a part of the territories, um, uh, Montana or Wyoming or the Dakotas or one of them. Um, or even a, another country, which is floated. Uh, and then separately, obviously, Amalgamation Capital is repeated uh, many times by Charlie Utter in the context of um, uh, the callousness of Wolcott and Hearst's uh, interest in the town uh, and how little it has, little regard it, ha- it seems to have, uh, the, the, that interest seems to have for human life. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Overall, I would say that uh, I mean I'll, I'll I'll give a little synopsis as best I can. This episode's kind of all over the place, um, but it's a lot of little threads that come together. Um, but uh, it's a William-centric episode, so this is somebody who we uh, haven't spent all that much time with before. Um, William Bullock, who is uh, Seth's, I guess, adopted son, but also uh, his nephew. Um, and, uh, yeah, and uh, I, I really liked uh, uh, one aspect of this. Uh, well, I mean, I liked several aspects of the, the episode. But overall, one of the things I really liked about it is that um, there are a lot of scenes that, to me, felt like they were staged a lot like a play. I don't know if you you uh, you observed this, but um, two scenes that were very play-like for me. I just saw uh, Glengarry Glen Ross on stage uh, recently, Ooh. which is a great movie, but I'd never actually seen the, the original play. Um, and uh, it was really cool, but it, this really jumped out to me. So, like, when Charlie and Jane are, are speaking in the prison, um, there's a lot of cuts back and forth between the characters, but it definitely feels like a scene that could have been done on stage. And if they had just sort of locked the camera down, the whole thing would have looked very play-like. Um, and also when Ellsworth is speaking with Trixie, where they're sort of both facing what looks like, you know, it's the thoroughfare, but it's the audience talking to each other about the proposal. I also thought that was very play-like. And uh, the the rhythm of the, the dialogue felt like that in those scenes uh, in particular. Uh, where they, again, they're sort of talking to each other, they're sort of talking to the audience, and the momentum in the dialogue um, when they pause is picked up um, by the character's trains of thought. So like, you know, in the, oftentimes in, in plays, especially dialogue-heavy plays like David Mamet pieces and things like that, you'll you'll see that they'll they'll speak for a while and then there'll be a pause or some sort of break and then they'll pick up a different chain of thought and go off on that bit. So it's sort of like a continuation, but like a new scene that in a movie or something you might cut away from. But in this case, they just let those sort of trains of thought play out. So that sort of came across to me in a, in a live action, um, sorry, a stage play sort of way. Um, anyway, so the episode, uh, like I said, it is all over the place. Um, again, it's a lot of Al navigating several different uh, threads um, uh, as uh, he has to deal with uh, Miss Isringhausen. He has to deal with um, the the news uh, the newspaper situation uh, with Merrick. 
Um, and the, uh, what else does he have to deal with? There's something else that's going on. Uh, well, he gets Farnham to help him out with the, um, uh, with uh, keeping an eye on the telegraph uh, operator. Um, but in addition to that, uh, there is um, the founding of the bank, which is officially sort of kicking off. Um, there is the blossoming relationship between um, Jane and Joni, which is uh, fun to watch uh, unfold. Um, there's the aftermath of uh, Moe's killing his brother last episode, um, which uh, has several different sort of uh, uh, connotations and, and, uh, and bits of fallout in this episode. Um, and then, like I said, this uh, episode focuses a lot on William, who is um, building a relationship with Seth, and uh, by proxy, Martha is softening on Seth uh, a bit. Um, and uh, you sort of see William interact with several different people in the camp. Um, and overall, I would say this you know this episode has is actually quite light on um, on uh, plot. Well, it's light on plot, but it's also light on... I don't uh, mean that as a negative. I mean, I, I agree with that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. But also, what I, I guess what I meant to say is that it's sort of uh, light on um, the coarseness of the camp, right? There's a lot of, like, wholesome moments in this episode, you know? Um, while it, it does end on sort of a, well, on a, on a sad note, it is... Um, you know, you get to see William interacting with all these different... Like, Tom Nuttall last episode, as wholesome as the bike ride was... His his boasting about the uh, the bicycle was still quite, you know, coarse, gritty. You know, like oh, you know, I'm gonna um, if you anybody who doubts me, you know, that kind of thing. All that all that sort of bravado and stuff is sort of put aside for for a little bit so that they can interact with this child. Even Trixie, you know, is 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 um, sort of containing her uh, uh, her instincts, you know, her her uh, her her reactions so that you know, it's sort of kid friendly. Um, so that was kind of, uh, kind of a, a fun way to see some of these characters. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty much all. Oh, and then the one, the one other thing, which isn't really, I suppose, a plot point, it's sort of introduced for the purposes of this episode, which is that there is a wild horse that, um, uh, fields has wrangled in some form or fashion or stolen, or I don't know. And, um, well, I guess not so. It's a wild horse has somehow gotten it to the stable, um, and it, the there's a plan to, I guess, uh, spay the horse. I don't know if you spay horses. I guess you spay horses, um, and uh, and tame it, um, which obviously has consequences down the line. Um, so yeah, sorry, I've been talking for ages. What did you think of the episode? You know what's funny? I mean, first of all, we do have. I guess maybe we should just say one bit of business. Um, they put out a trailer for the Deadwood movie. Oh yes. Um, yes. We'll since we last recorded, <laughs> I, I would, I'm sure you would. I have not watched it. That's good. Yeah. Um, I knew you didn't. <laughs> I don't want to know. I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid even looking at a cast list for this movie. Cause I don't want to know who's like around at the end of season three mm. or who, or who is conspicuously absent from such right. a cast list. Right, right, right. Um, I don't want to know. So <laughs> I, I did in fact get one thing spoiled by just uh, by accidentally seeing it. And I won't mention what it is in case you're watching along with us. But when that thing happens as, as is kind of being alluded to already, uh, I'll mention what was given away for me. 
Maybe I'll tell you after we're done recording. Yeah, yeah, um, you should tell me afterwards. However, if it's the thing I think it is, it also might not happen in the course of the show. It may be a between, like we don't possibly. Remember, it's 13, 13 years between. Um, that's so, that's definitely possible. Um, so it, so it would be a spoiler in that it's a spoiler for the movie, but not for the show. Um, uh, but yeah, like this movie is gonna. I think it's coming out in May, right? Yeah, right around right around after Game of Thrones wraps up, which means we won't get to it. I, I mapped it out until like the end of August, I think. Right, exactly. And it's something that I think, um, yeah, people should be aware of if you're listening to this. We, or if you've been following along with the show, we will be taking a break from Hoopleheads briefly, not the same as last time. Our goal is to move straight into Star Contrast, which is our Game of Thrones podcast. Highly recommend you check that out. If you haven't already, you can catch up from season four onward. We have uh, Game of Thrones uh, episodes dating back from when we didn't have good microphones all the way to uh, now. Um <laughs> You know, just using the computer microphones. It was, uh, it was a great time. Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, we'll switch to that. Uh, but Game of Thrones is only... It's six. really short. I think it's only six. It's only six episodes. Long episodes, but epi- uh, six episodes. So um, <laughs> we should be back on to Hoopleheads pretty quickly. And then we'll finish up season three, and then we'll move into the movie. I will say this about the, the trailer without discussing the actual content of it. By the way, nothing happens in the trailer. Like... There's oh. no plot. There's no plot. Um, okay. I saw just, it was like 45 seconds long. I was like, eh, maybe I should watch it, but I did I did decide not to. I, it, it's it's still good not to watch it because it does like, you know, it's a lot of characters going, you know, it's like, oh, that character's back or whatever. And they're all so old. Oh, my God. It's so <laughs> depressing. The whole episode, That's what I, I was hoping for. You could just tell it's going to be depressing <laughs> as hell. Um, but, uh, but there's a, a fantastic interaction between two characters who are uh, – I won't say who they are. They're quite central to the plot of Deadwood. Um, and uh, it's just perfectly. It, so for for those of you who've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. It is, for me, it just captures in the space of like maybe one line of dialogue or I think it's just one line of dialogue. Just absolutely like they're in top form, these these actors, and they're right back on the ball. Um, so I'm unbelievably excited. I was really unsure, to be honest, because I like it's tough to come back to something. Um after all that time to put some, to give some, uh, uh, one example, which is sort of, I don't know, maybe a bit unorthodox. I love dumb and dumber. Great movie. Unbelievably <laughs> funny movie. Dumb and dumber Two is an interesting film for a lot of reasons. My interesting, I mean, bad. Uh, but then one of the main reasons is that trying to slip into these iconic characters that these, these two actors created, you know, whatever it was like 20 years before they just don't know how to fit back into that role like those roles again like they don't like jim carrey has no idea how to play lloyd christmas he has no idea what to do with it he completely oversell or overdoes the character it's like somebody doing a parody of the character and i so in contrast you know these are also larger than life characters in deadwood obviously it's like comedy but it's the same sort of you know al swearingen is a quite a character and from what i can I can tell of all these characters for the ones that are in the trailer, they definitely feel like they're, they fit in, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel like Mm -hmm. they're hamming up their previous roles. They're, they're, they're sort of slipping right back into it as if they've been sitting in character for the past 13 years. Now, whether or not that'll be true for everyone, I don't know. We didn't see like almost no characters speak in the episode, in the trailer. It's a very short one and who knows what the movie will be like, but for what it's worth, it looks to me like they're not going to fall into this trap of becoming pastiches of their former um, 
uh, iconography. So that's all for that. Very sure. good. Okay. Um, anyway, so, yeah. yeah I, what I wanted to say is that I completely disagree with you about everything you said about this episode. Um, <laughs> even though I liked it, it is a it is a very good episode, but it's not that I disagree with you. It's just that I had a very pretty much the opposite takeaway from both things you just said. Oh, awesome! Um, the first one, very quickly, I found this episode like especially coarse. Um, oh, that's so funny! In a way, like in just one specific way, the number of times they say "fuck" in this episode, it's like they say that a lot on this show. But I just, whatever reason, this episode in particular, I feel like they've ramped it up by like 50%. It's just, they they sprinkle in a couple more into every single line. And it is every single line. Merrick starts using it, and Merrick never swears. It's, it's, it is, I found it especially vulgar. Um, in a, in, even on a show like this. Right, well, I actually think, uh, it's funny that you say that, because for me it didn't feel like, well, first of all, I don't find fuck to be a particularly of all the things said on this show it doesn't rank very highly for me on the, like i kind of maybe i just tune it out i don't know but and i don't mean in the show i mean in general like in life i just don't i don't think of it oh, that I, way me, me neither listen i i, I use it pretty no, no, liberally, no. but absolutely but i mean just in the so i guess that's when i mean chorus right like you know just to to put it into context right to to, to quote the last uh uh, uh ap- ep- episode when uh, Tom Nuttall is boasting about his his um his uh his his bike right that he's going to ride it across the thoroughfare mm-hmm. right just like he can't even boast about it without you know turning it into sort of a vulgar sexual act you know what i mean and like to me that kind of thing that specific kind of thing was mostly absent from the episode obviously there were bits and pieces al can't help himself um I thought it was funny, though, to see, like, Trixie trying to restrain herself and to see Merrick, who almost never swears, or has never sworn, as far as I know, I think, um, you know, having, sort of, like, reversing those positions. Um, but it's funny that you say that, because I, I just, I don't know, I didn't I didn't feel, I feel like there's been a lot of that in previous episodes, and not so much this one, but I suppose it's just different, different strokes. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, uh, the other thing I disagree with you about is that um, you mentioned that this episode struck you as being very play-like. This episode struck me as being especially cinematic. Um, <laughs> and it's directed by our man Ed Bianchi. Yeah. Ed Bianchi, who we've talked about many times this season, well, twice this season, but he, he killed it on the first two episodes. Mm. And did he do anything else yet? This no, he oh he's doing the season finale, but this is his first episode since then. And yeah, there are so many uh, compositions in this episode. I posted one on Twitter a little bit ago um, when I was watching that are just so unusual for television, and particularly the for this particular period of television history. Um, so much TV from this period of, uh, of time is widescreen but it's composed for, for four by three mm. and you still see TV shows doing this. Cause I think it's just for a lot of TV directors, it's in their nature. It's a reflex. They just kind of don't know. They haven't realized that they can stop doing it. The reason it's like that is because during this kind of mid two thousands period, when widescreen TVs were starting to become more affordable and popular, um, TV directors had to compose a shot for both widescreen and four by three because they didn't know which type of TV people would be watching it on. Right. Like I didn't, I didn't have a widescreen TV till probably after Deadwood was done airing. Um, and I expect that's true of a lot of people. That was probably true so of you me see, too, yeah. you see a lot of 
TV, uh, a lot of TV shows of this time composing in a way where the characters are kind of uh, in the center of the frame always, even yep. if it's a, even if it's a two shot, it's, they're always kind of centered a little bit and you can see it like it's, you can, you can see the lines in your head or at least I can on the screen of like, well, here's the dead parts on the left and right where yep. a four by three TV wouldn't see anything. Um, and you, it's, it's, a, it's, particularly unusual to see a TV show of this time period composing for widescreen. And that's what Ed Bianchi is doing in this episode. Um, and the shot that I posted on Twitter, which, you know, it'll be oh, a week old by the time you listen to this, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll link it to Sora and he can link to it in the, yep. in the episode post. It is so strange because first of all, it's composed for widescreen. So you have characters on the far left and right of the screen. Um, which means, you know, that that's a bold move because the, there's no guarantee that anyone is going to see, uh, or the, not that anyone, but that a lot of people are going to see the fo- what is the focus of the shot. Um, but let, hang on, let me pull it up again so I can describe it better. It's just, it, it is also kind of, uh, it is untheatrical. Like, I agree with you, that scene uh, with Charlie and... Um, with Charlie and Seth is, is very, is very theatrical because it's very flat. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's very two dimensional, right? It's just the two of them on a flat plane talking sort of outward to the audience. Like I completely agree you mean, with you. Uh, like Charlie and, uh, sorry, uh, I was Ellsworth and Trixie and then Charlie and Jane that I had. Oh, I was thinking of a scene, the scene with Charlie and Seth when they leave, um, size, when they leave the belly union. Oh yeah, I mean that one could be that one certainly. Could. There's a lot. Of, I mean, I, look, most scenes you can, that you could do on stage, but I just it was it was the two I referenced. The two I referenced, I thought specifically felt like um, plays. However, I will say just to 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 actually bolster your point a little bit, I do agree that um, there are a lot. There are also moments in this that do feel like uh, they were done specifically with cinematic technique. For example, there's that scene where. Um, it's not a POV shot, which is what I think makes it unique, but where um, Al puts on his glasses and the newspaper comes into focus, um, which I thought was kind of a fun uh, a twist on a on a. I, I wrote trope. that down. That's a that's a great great moment. Yeah. yeah. So like, absolutely, and that's not a thing you can do on stage. So I I completely agree. I just think that there were moments that also felt kind of play like in in addition to moments that yeah. were done with. And you, I agree. Like there's there's another scene. I don't remember which one. There's a scene where somebody exits the screen exits the screen through the lower left-hand corner. I think it's Charlie or somebody just like leaves the scene through the lower left-hand corner of this, which was a really bizarre way to, for a, for a, um, I think it was a, the scene, that's how the scene ended or something. And I was like, that never happens. Why would somebody leave the shot through the lower left-hand corner of this? It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, um, so yeah. And like, again, that's something that doesn't really have any, anything to do with stage. Yeah. But yeah, this, this particular, so I'm looking at it now so I can kind of remember. Mm. First of all, it's framed through this doorway. So you have sort of the, the left and right uh, blocked off negative space. But then Trixie is to the, vi- it, it's when Alma is entering the bank or, mm. or the, the uh, store. And um, Trixie is off to the very far right. And Seth is sitting at the table over on the left, but he's not all the way to the left. So it's this, and Alma's coming in for, uh closer to the center than Trixie, but not all the way at the center. So it's this weird, it it is framed as though it is framed symmetrically, but the subjects of the frame are completely unbalanced. They're kind of all over the place. And just for television, that's so unusual because you want, if you're a TV director, you want something, a very simple setup. You want to just very, very quickly and cleanly communicate a visual idea. Um, And you're with a lot of TV, you're mostly letting the script do the heavy lifting. 
you're not really using visual direction to tell the story for a lot of shows, for, for most television. Obviously, there are many, many examples where that's not true. Deadwood is one of them. Stuff like, you know, Twin Peaks or The Sopranos or Mad Men are shows that are, are very well directed and that do employ visual storytelling to some degree. But this is an example where it's it's just... It is so... It, it struck me. I took a screen cap because it's so unusual and it's, it's so strange and off-putting. And it should be because this scene is... And it is a, an off-putting moment where mm-hmm. Alma walks in to, uh, to, to see the safe ostensibly, but really it's to, uh, confront Martha and Seth. So it has to be kind of, you know, tense and, and unusual and, uh, and kind of knock you, knock you off your rhythm. Yeah. I mean, it is awkward. It's also, but there's also, there is actually, I think some balance to it. So I'm looking at it now, right? So you have Seth and, uh, Saul and, um, I think it's Martha's arm on one side yeah uh and on the other side you have uh so uh sophia's head and uh mm-hmm. alma and trixie um so you do have this and it is you know um and then the center of it where your eye is almost drawn to is a, is a ladder uh, <laughs> yeah it's an that's, that's the other thing i was going to say the it's completely blank in the center of the edge. right it's just it's just this ladder and then a bunch of you know axes on the wall um so all you know off you know skewed so i mean it's a it is you're right it is a it is a a strange shot and it did stick out i think mostly it stuck out to me though because uh alma has an absolutely ridiculous uh but fantastic uh red outfit on um (laughs) but anyway yes i i agree i think there was some really cool stuff done in this episode in that regard as well um and and like i said you know if it really wanted to play up the stage stuff there wouldn't have been so much shot reverse shot in um uh in the like for example in the in the uh, the jail um because you know you would just sort of lock down the camera and just see it as it plays out um but instead there's you know these reaction shots and uh, uh close ups and all sorts of things so um yeah uh that's uh that's good i mean i think i think uh I think we 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 can agree that we both like uh, Ed Bianchi as a as a director on Deadwood very much. I, I no disrespect to Daniel Minahan, but I kind of wish he was doing the movie. Yeah. Um, well, w- what else did Daniel uh, Minahan do? I don't remember if he's he has for sure. He has he did Mister Wu. He did Suffer the Little Children. He's he's done two episodes of the show. Okay, which I remember right. being good episodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely. I think we like Mister Wu, and I definitely Suffer the Little Children was really good. So, let's see. Let's see how the movie takes. Who knows? Um. So yeah, uh, William, <laughs> William Bullock is the subject of this episode. I would say is like uh, yeah, so certainly have, the connector. I have two notes. I have it's good seeing more William. And then a couple lines down, I say, I have, oh. <laughs> yeah, um, that was my takeaway. It is really funny that they that they give him kind of the the spotlight in this episode and, and end it the way they do. Yeah. So um, so here's my thought about William. And this is going to this is probably the most negative thing I have to say about this episode. I and this is a pet peeve of so many writers and this is like uh, such a trope but it is the case that writer that uh, writers who write children like adults are annoying and <laughs> william talks like an adult and i don't just mean like he talks in the deadwoody style of whatever he 
does not act like a child in any real fashion or form. And I get that he's like 11, you know, he's not like a little kid, but yeah. So that one critique aside, well, I, I, I think it was, it was, uh, I, I like the episode. I just found William to be, and it wasn't like precocious. It wasn't like that. It was like, he was like a small man, but he's not. And, and I guess, you know what? He is in a way, right? He's had to sort of fill in for his father who died. So I guess you could see yeah. it in that sense, but that that's that is what I took away from it. I mean, my my problem with William in this episode is that the kid who plays him is not good. <laughs> and I get oh, like okay, fair. you have to be with child performances, you have to be so forgiving because how can you possibly expect a child to be a good actor? It's a crazy thing to expect. Um and there have been many great child performances throughout history. Um this is not one of them. He he is very much like, I feel like he's being fed his lines and then they roll the cameras and he just repeats it phonetically. There's just nothing to him. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Yeah, it does feel a bit robotic, but I guess it feels like a bit like, a, you know, a, but then all the adult actors on the show are so good. So it, it does feel like it contrasts a bit. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and it's not just, uh, you know, what can you expect of a child? It's also that, you know, there is a, a real question as to whether or not kids are really acting when they're acting versus adults. And that is a real question. Um, and I think that that's something that uh, it's not addressed enough. You know, when somebody, oh, wow, what a great performance. And then it's like, well, but it wasn't a great performance. And it's not to take away from their performance at all. I mean, I think that like Kavanjane Wallace did an amazing job in Beasts of the Southern Wild. Um, but I think she was also, you know, performing a, a something that she was you know familiar with and i think that that's great and i think there's ways to do that really well and i think some kid actors really just blow blow you out of the water um as she did in that film and i think she she was very deserving of i think she got an oscar nomination for that yeah she did um but i think that it's not surprising when an actor, a kid actor can't because oh yeah you know to put yourself in someone else it's, it requires this whole other sort of way of being which is very difficult to 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 convey uh, to a child on what to do. You have to pretend to be this other person. It's not just like make-believe. It's like a whole other, it's a whole other thing. And I don't know, there's some psychology to it that I'm not entirely uh, familiar with, but it does. Well, I think it, for a kid and like, you know, I, I watched the Florida project recently and I oh, think yeah. the kids in that are, are outstanding. Yeah. Um, and I, it doesn't, it never really, it never really occurs to me to think about how much the degree to which they are performing versus mm. the degree to which they are just, you know, cast because that's how they are and it's, and it seems natural. Mm. I think it's really hard for a kid to get their head around the idea that they have to deliver a line naturally, for example, or act naturally, like in their physicality, because if they're being told to do something, then, you know, by definition, that's something they wouldn't normally do. That's something they wouldn't normally say. It's something they are being directed to say. So I think for, in the example of the kid who plays William, you certainly get the sense that it's like, there's just nothing natural about it. And there can be, you know, there are a lot of performances I like that are to, to know it in no universe resemble reality. Like there are plenty of performances that are great because they are not realistic. Of course. And they are not natural. But this is just, like you said, very robotic and very like it just it feels like he is. And I, I hate that we're like spending 10 minutes shitting on a child. It feels terrible. <laughs> And I would like to stop, but I guess <laughs> I guess I'll just conclude. Yeah, it's not a great performance. It's not a great performance. I, I, um, not to. I, I actually, 
I don't have much to say about his performance other than like, yeah, it's, it's not groundbreaking. I, it wasn't immersion breaking for me, but I wasn't like bowled over. Um, but I will say just uh, about uh, the Florida project um, uh, to your point, And it was something I was thinking of before you even said this, which is that uh, Brooklyn Prince who plays Mooney. Uh, I went to the, the London premiere of that, um, that movie and uh, Willem Dafoe and Brooklyn Prince and everybody else in the movie came out on stage afterwards. It was really cool. Uh, Willem Dafoe was the surprise guest, but uh, they all came out to answer questions, and um, uh, and the director, um, and uh, Brooklyn Prince is literally just that same person in, you know, because <laughs> well, I've been acting for eight years, and I'm, you know, she had these big fluffy dress, and she she was hilarious, she was really entertaining, but she is that character, so like, um, I think that that speaks exactly to your point, like she was cast probably because she fit exactly what that character was supposed to be. Um, uh, not to take away again from her performance. Again, that movie's amazing and everyone should go watch it. Anyway, William is, I mean, we have to talk about William cause he's the, you know, he's the guy. Um, so, uh, yeah. so let's yeah. Why don't we start with the opening scene then? Um, where Seth is, uh, for, I guess just out of, out of, uh, good nature trying to bond a bit with William over um, over the loss of uh, the loss of his brother. Yeah. I mean, I think he's trying to patch things over with Martha primarily and not, not to be too cynical about this scene because it is a sweet scene, but I think that he is trying to not get in William's good graces, but he is trying to uh, act more of a, be, be a better father to him for the sake of, of, of repairing his relationship with Martha. Uh, you know, it's, it's again, not to be too cynical because I don't think Seth is, is doing this cynically, but I do think that he, you know, first of all, I laughed very, very hard at this opening line where he asks his 11 year old child, if he is sometimes permitted coffee. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's just what a, I'm that's saying very... though, you know, like he's treated like, so like his lines are very adult, like, but also he's treated like an adult in many ways, you know, so yeah. in fairness. Um, but um, it's funny. It's yeah, funny but, that you say this because I actually don't think that this was for Martha's sake. I actually think I couldn't tell if it was to just become friendlier with um, uh, with William, or if it was because, as it turns out, he didn't know his own brother very well at all, which is new information, which yeah, makes this true. whole arrangement even more bizarre. Um, you know, his brother basically—I don't know—I guess his, I, I can't remember what it was. Does his brother ask him to to marry Martha or look after the kids? He sent him a letter. Yeah, yeah. So he did this to his estranged brother, basically, who he hasn't seen for his whole life. He asked, you know, Seth to go and do this, um, which is like kind of crazy. But I guess you know, who else would you ask? Um, and so it's also like I just want to know about my brother, who I didn't really get to to know very well, and and by learning that, I might learn a little bit about you. But then the look he gives Martha before on his way out um, is just devastating. Uh, and I think it's clearly implied here, to me anyway, that Martha is, when he when she sees Seth getting along with William and really trying to be a some sort of father figure, that she's feeling a bit bad about the fact that she rebuked him after he gave up clearly the woman that he was in love with, uh, built this house and has immediately ended everything that was making him happy in order to be a good, you know, like not, not to absolve him of the fact that he was technically married and uh, sleeping with uh, uh, someone else uh, in, in the camp, but he did do pretty much everything expected of him to try and, you know, provide a house and family and, you know, a 
way of life and uh, uh, financial support and all the rest of it to uh, these folks who just sort of showed up at his door without much warning. Um, that he doesn't really know and that he's just trying to do the right thing for. Uh, and then she, when she rebukes him, I think maybe she feels a bit guilty about that. And he's clearly hurt by this rebuke. So the idea that he's trying to win her over, I don't know if I buy that. Not not win her over directly, but he is trying to, I don't know, the, the sense I got was that this is less for William's sake than for her sake. Hmm. That he is trying to, because this is the first time we've really seen him have any interest in what William needs as a child. I don't know. Well, he talked about uh, fishing in the brook, right? And it was like a couple of episodes ago. Right? Yeah, but here he's directly at, like when the subtext to me of him asking, what did your father like to do is he's asking, what did your father like to do with you? Right. Like, what can I do with you? Sure. Yeah. No, I definitely think he's trying to uh, build a relationship with, with William. That's for sure. I just don't know that if it's, I think he, he feels like he tried with Martha and she sort of, you know, and so he sort of, he's like, all right, well, she doesn't want to have anything to do with me. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk to William then. Um, <laughs> But anyway, yes, and uh, uh, there is this this uh, this tension because now Martha feels like she's on the outside. Um, perhaps I, you know, we haven't seen her. Funny enough, we haven't seen her interact with her own son almost at all. Um, mm. She's the, they're supposed to. They should have the closest relationship of the three of them. Um, and so there's this kind of odd scene a bit later where he's planting, where William's planting seeds that his father from a sunflower that his father liked, or he liked sunflowers in general. Um, and Martha's trying to, and he, and he suggests that maybe, uh, uh, Seth will like it too, because his dad did, um, which is kind of a sweet thought. And, uh, Martha's like, well, I should be involved in this, you know, like almost like she's left out of this, uh, this new relationship that's forming. Yeah. I don't know. That, that was just my takeaway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's, it's in any case, it seems like, um, their relationship is going to be on hold for a little bit. <laughs> well, given the ending of this episode, I would say that's fair. I would say that's fair. Um, yeah. Well, you know, look, this isn't spoiling anything in Game of Thrones, and not to talk about Game of Thrones, but like, you know, Game of Thrones is the only show that can end up with kids getting injured. Okay, so just want to say that. Um, so uh, yeah, so so William's sort of making his way around camp. He's uh He's doing math with Trixie. He's going on a bike ride, sort of, with Tom Nuttall, or trying to. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's just sort of making his way about town, and suddenly everybody knows and cares about him and <laughs> is interested in what he's doing. <laughs> now, the thing is, what's nice about this show is when they do something like this, it doesn't feel to me anyway. Because naturally in a show with so many characters and so many threads, you're going to have to sideline certain things. So when they bring characters in who haven't been talked about much, it it can feel like it's like, who is that person again? Or why does that character care about this character suddenly? But sometimes, sometimes, but other times it's like in this case, it's like, it's almost like the camera wasn't pointed at William when he was interacting with people in camp. Because of course he would interact with people in camp. He doesn't even have school to go to. He just wanders around doing whatever he wants, as far as we know, um, chopping wood and stuff, that, apparently. Um, so like the fact that he has you know, he formed some sort of relationship with Tom Nuttall or whatever. Not that they had a previous, a prior relationship of any, you know, meaningful variety, but that they would get along or that he would know people in the camera. They would know him and sort of, you know, be kind to him. It's something that is believable because again, we sort of believe this camp exists and that these characters would have interacted even if we didn't see it on camera. 
um, which I think is a, 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 another sort of testament to the, the show's uh, location-based uh, storytelling. Yeah, I wrote something I wrote down, something that's interesting about Deadwood and, and kind of unusual again is, is that it, so much happens off screen. So much happens that we don't see that is later talked about. And it right. does, It yeah, you're right. It doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel like stuff comes out of nowhere. Like a great example in this episode is when, well, the other thing I noted is that something that happens often on the show is that scenes will end too early. They will seem to just sort of cut off and cut to something else. And it's not a mistake in editing. I think it lends to the sense that the camp, something is always happening in the camp that we're not seeing some, you know, everything sort of continues past what we see because we have to get to something else. And it gives the sense that like, even when we see something happening, there are other things happening at the same time. Uh, and a great example is when Farnham is talking to the, the telegraph operator and Miss Isringhausen, that scene cuts, like it just kind of ends. But then later we see Farnham go to Al and tell him about this thing that happened. Right. We tell him about the end of this scene that we didn't see. And first of all, I think it's efficient just as an editor because... Uh, we don't need to know this information twice, but we need to know that Al knows it. Right. So we need to. So all we need to know is that Farnham tells him. We don't need to see it happen. Um, but also, I think yeah, it does lend to the sense of like it makes the camp feel a little more alive. This idea that we're just kind of, it's almost like a security. Like we're cutting to different security cameras around camp. Exactly. And we're exactly. seeing all these different angles and everything's sort of happening at once. Especially in this, and we could talk about the editing of the ending of this episode because it's phenomenal. It is really um, good. Yes. And by the way, I love this show uses, um, I think it's it's a guitar uh, playing that tense music that always plays whenever something horrible is about to happen. I think it played when the um, when Wolcott uh, did the murders. And I think uh, it's happened several times. I think it happens when 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 Bill dies while Bill Hickok. Um, It's just this like really it's just dread inducing (laughs) because you're like, oh, God, something (laughs) bad's going to happen. and it's really good, and it helps that, of course, it's it's really well edited in these scenes um, to bring it all together in a way that doesn't feel confusing or forced. It's sort of like, yeah, it makes sense that these things would happen at the same time. And then you sort of see these threads pull together. You know what, by the way? This last episode, this last uh, uh, scene, or this last, uh, the editing of this last scene, um, not to, to, to mention it right away, but like, it, you know, uh, what's that movie? Um was Christopher Nolan's most recent movie? Oh, um, Dunkirk. Yeah, Dunkirk. You know, that movie got a lot of uh, props for, for like, you know, aligning timelines. And I know this doesn't do time in the same way that the, uh, you know, the movie did. Um, I didn't love Dunkirk. I thought it was fine. Um, Me neither. Yeah, it was, it's whatever. It, yeah, it was fine. Um, but that's what I think is, like, there are there are shows and there are, well, shows. We I mean, forget about movies, but there are shows uh, and movies that do really cool things with editing, with sort of aligning different plot lines or story or, or time uh, points together, right? Like, because part of it is, you know, we don't. We're led to believe that the whole conversation about the wild horse happens, you know, but the next step in the wild horse narrative is great. We've tied the horse down, and we're going to do the uh, the the neutering, right? It's only that's an A and B. Uh, a leads to B and that's it. And meanwhile, all this other stuff happens, even though nothing really happens in the episode, all these other things happen. And then we see the B. So it's almost like this very short plot line is stretched over the course of the whole episode. Is yeah. It, that's you know a what I mean? Point. And so yeah. comparing these two things and then they're edited together at the end so that they're simultaneous. And it's like, you know, eat your heart out, Dunkirk. That was a, uh, what, 
10 years before. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. Like it, it does. And this is something that TV is great at, right? It's, it's stretching uh, certain events out so they feel like they take a place over a longer time, even though, you know, we're, we're meant to understand that these things happen back to back, but you can put them at the beginning and the end of an episode and it all of a sudden it feels like there's been a longer stretch of time, but also it, it allows you to place a certain scene more advantageously just in your overall narrative and your overall structure. And that's exactly what happens with the Hostetler and, uh, and Fields scene with the horse. It's like that, what the first time we see them, the second scene happens immediately after the first scene, yeah. but it makes more sense for what they're trying to do with the ending of this episode for it to happen at the end. So we set it up at the beginning, we have it set up, we're done, and then we can and place then like the an hour really later, wherever, yeah, yeah, really wherever we want. And the best place to put it is at the ending because, and like, let's just let's just talk, <laughs> you know, yeah, and Dunkirk got a lot of props for its editing, but this the ending of this episode reminded me. You know, I, I didn't really think of Dunkirk. I think that's a good pull. But it reminded me of that sort of like, what do they call it? Hyperlink cinema, which is like the early Inyaradu films are kind of like this. There's other like, you know, like Babel or Crash mm. or Amores Peros or like other. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, like there, there's not a lot of traders a movie like that, too. I don't know if you saw. that. Yeah, like Cloud, Cloud Atlas is kind of like that. But it's this, you know, it's this idea that there's a lot of different um separate narratives this is i think what the new tarantino is supposed to be too there's a lot of different separate little narratives that sort of cross over with each other in ways that are insignificant to the individual narratives but significant to the larger narrative right um there's a lot of films like that but i I think that's what the ending of this episode really reminded me of is there's all these things happening and they are completely separate from one another but the way that they are cut together is so intense that you're like something terrible is going to happen in one of these storylines something something hideous and 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 vile is about to happen and i'm nervous i'm anxious about it right and like one of the last ones i would have expected is 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 William and Tom Nuttall riding a bicycle, to be honest with you. That was not where I expected, like, the the, the terrible event to unfold. Well, but I just knew, sure, like... You're not sure where the, um, you know, which of the... Because any of them could really have... Any of the, the different yeah. uh, storylines could have turned out to be um, deadly in some way, right? Like, it wasn't clear. And also, like, was Steve gonna, like, attack William in Retribution for Seth? Like, what, you know... yeah. You have no idea. Or, is, or there, there is tension in all of them. And what's funny is that you see kind of for a moment with, with what happens in the Bell Union to Moe's manual, which is he gets shot by the guards um, intentionally. Like we should talk about that later, too, that that um, Walcott like provokes Incited, him to get yeah, him killed, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, it, it almost feels like that's the conclusion, but then it keeps going. Like it keeps ramping up. It's like the beginning like, of the tension. Yeah, it's the beginning of the tension. I would say it's right? like yeah. It's what, a... what what is what what more could possibly happen at the end of this episode? Yeah, worse than a murder <laughs> is like a like a child murder or what you know whatever has happened to William. Um, exactly. So like that kind of because uh, it's not clear at the end, right? If if William's alive or dead or what's going on. No, he he is lying like unconscious splayed out in the thoroughfare yeah, and it, it, it doesn't look it good. does not look good it like look the, good. the horse runs it's kind of hard to tell because uh, you know we we talk a lot about what deadwood is able to do on on tv i think we see a little bit of the limit of television in this in the actual shots of him getting run over they are not clear very difficult to make out very quick and you can tell that like this effect whatever however they accomplish this effect uh <laughs> they are they are hiding it a little bit 
Mm. Which, you know, and, you know not, not even a criticism, just that's how TV goes sometimes, especially in the mid-2000s. No, it is, but I mean, like, ultimately conveys the point, right? Because we see the aftermath. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, they, they get it across. Yeah. Um, but no, I agree. Yeah, I think they used, the, what it seemed to be, it was a slow motion effect. But it's like one of those, it's like the 90s slow motion effect where it's just like still frames as opposed to, because there's not enough frames to to do slow motion properly. So it's like that weird, they do it, you know where they do this? This is completely un, unrelated, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the things that's, for me, one of the hardest to watch, and I guess it's sort of impressionistic, or you can look at it that way, is that slow motion fight at the end of The Lion King drives me crazy it's ridiculous you don't need to do like slide it's like it's like a slideshow <laughs> it's so weird i think it's I don't between, remember that at all it's between simba and mufasa look it up afterwards look up the scene it's hilarious but like it's animation so there's no reason to do it that way you could just do a slow motion fight if that's what you want to do um anyway it's quite funny um i didn't remember it either until a couple of years ago lion king was on tv and i was like is this really how the final fight goes down what? <laughs> it's bizarre um, I can't wait to see it in live action this summer. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I hope they do the same thing, because that would actually be really funny to me. Shot for shot. <laughs> yeah, do it with, like, the old 90s. Uh, anyway, I don't <laughs> know why I even brought that up. Um, so, uh, getting back to the actual plot. Yeah, so why don't we talk about, um, well, I don't know. Why don't we talk about Jane and Joni? Yeah, let's do it. So I love her introduction <laughs> in this. This is fantastic. Um, with the... Joni pulls up the blinds and Jane's sort of leaning. She which is actually really sweet. Um, it's funny, but it's also really sweet. She apparently passed out outside the uh, the Chesame and didn't want to um, didn't want to bother Joni, uh, assuming she was still alive. Uh, so she's when when uh, J- uh, Joni finds her, she's just uh, Jane's just sort of laying there against the window. Yeah, and her the excuse is great. Like it goes. What does she say exactly? It's like. If you were alive, I didn't want to bother you. Yeah, right, you dead, right. Let you get some sleep. To... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you were dead, <laughs> what's the point? I guess, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, though their relationship is so sweet, you can tell. Like Jane has this very, she feels very protective of Joni, and Joni feels very protective of Jane. She, you know, she wants to, she wants, she wants to help Jane however she can. Um, letting her move in with her is obviously a, is a great step, I think, for Jane. Mm. Uh, giving getting her out of uh living in not, jail. not having to have well yeah i mean not not hey literally getting her out of jail it's some great symbolism but also um out from under charlie's shadow a little bit right you know obviously i think independence is not something jane is 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 short of well in, in some her... ways in, in some ways in other ways she does find herself sort of rudderless after bill dies and charlie's you know tries to take that place but can't really handle it so well, rudderless is yeah rudderless is different than having the sort of uh agency that she has sure. over her own life like she true. is she is the only one who can control her herself and she cannot she has no control over her life currently that's 100 percent. i guess i just meant in companionship i guess is the the main thing yeah is that she no, does, you're right despite being such a like almost loner type character in demeanor right she's not warm and cuddly she does seem to really crave companionship of some form or another just apparently from anybody but charlie <laughs> she just for some reason, cannot stand. Even though he never really seems to do anything other than try and look after her. Like, I don't really know what the animosity has ever been between them. Um, maybe that's what she finds annoying about him. I don't know. I think she resents that a little bit, yeah. Or that, or maybe it's, um, 
because she because she's so independent, um, or maybe it's because uh, you know split attentions from from Bill, who clearly had great affection for both of them. I don't know. It's, it's hard. Well, but say. she also like a couple episodes ago, she does have that moment of vulnerability with him, where she says like it's it's getting one over on me or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she is she is definitely like I think there is a, a degree of resentment of the way he he tries to look out for her, but I like she is clearly. That is masking, not not affection, but like she she does feel like she can be reliant on him. Yeah, like there's some reliable. appreciation or some sort of yeah, for sure. Um, I also like that you know, it's it sort of implied at first. Uh, you know, Jane spits in the street and Joni recoils. Um, and it's implied that like oh, this is sort of a contrast to these two characters. But then Joni says a bunch of weird. I'll talk about coarseness now. I'm talking about it. Um, <laughs> this is a bunch of like weird coarse stuff about how uh, you know it's getting cold, uh, uh, or that she, she's getting cold, um, and uh, and it's like, uh, and basically trying to get Jane to come in um, to to the uh, to the building, uh, and like you sort of get the impression actually because of Joni's profession. And because of Jane's general demeanor, they actually probably have more in common than you might think, at least in terms of, like, they aren't typical ladylike characters, right? I mean, Joni sort of puts on those, puts on those airs for show, uh, you know, especially as a madam and uh, uh, as a prostitute. Um, but uh, uh, that's, like, not really who she is, right? She was sold into basically size care, you know, as a, as a, as a young person. Um and uh, or as a kid or whenever it was uh and uh so you know she's much more like Trixie underneath all that right in that sense and in some ways that kind of fits uh fits with uh, Jane's uh, sort of more rough and uh, tumble style as well even though on the surface they look like completely different people right Joni looks more like an Alma type character um so it's kind of cool to see their personalities come together and also that you know they both clearly like I said seek companionship and uh, Joni, as she says, is not really interested in reopening the Shazami. So it does put, you know, give her a chance to sort of delay that even further because obviously Jane, and by the way, the jokes about Jane becoming one of, one of the prostitutes, two jokes are made about that, both both by Jane, uh, by Jane and then when Charlie doesn't quite understand the situation uh, later on, um, are absolutely hilarious, but also... Um, you know, it's sweet to see uh, to see Jane find a, a spot in this in this building, which doesn't seem to have a purpose. Well, and it's sweet also for Joni because this is someone who is, you know, literally completely alone at this point. A- right. They're all everyone she had on, in her corner is is dead or uh, on a carriage out of town. So right. it's nice for for both of them for you know for Including Jane Charlie. to have someone. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> for Charlie not to have to. to take a little bit of the, of the load off where Jane's concerned. Cause yeah, Jane was pretty much her only, the only relationship she had was with Charlie. And yep. that was obviously like we talked about a little antagonistic. Um, so it's nice for, for Joni, I think to have someone she can rely on to have someone who is protective of her mm. and who can, you know, who, who can hold her own. Yeah, absolutely. Although the fun thing about this, uh, about this, uh, and I have another thing I can't say about this, but, um, it's the beauty of having seen the show. Um, but uh, one thing about Jane that we haven't seen is she is um, she came at Al, you know, in the first season uh, in trying to protect Sophia. Um, and that didn't really work out. And then there was this scene where she confronts Wolcott. And in both instances, she's she's got the sort of swagger and the weaponry to 
look like a tough guy, you know, type character, but then in both instances, it never really comes to anything. We actually haven't seen Jane actually be violent at all, ever. Um, huh. We've seen her get beaten up, or we haven't even seen that, but we've seen the aftermath of that, which the implication is that she was in some way attacked. It's not clear if she was involved in that. Again, it's implied that's the kind of person she might be, but we haven't actually seen that. So it's kind of, I don't know, kind of a fun thing. So so in terms of being a protector, um, we actually don't really have evidence of that. I mean, certainly she could be. She was in the army uh, as a scout, but, you know, who knows? Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see where that uh, where that goes. Um, but it is good. It is also, it raises questions about what's going to happen to the Shazami if Joni's not reopening it for anything. Like, obviously she has to make a living, right? So what what becomes of the place? Um, and what what do Joni and Jane do <laughs> with this building? You know, they could open a store or something. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah. I guess the uh, Merrick and the newspaper is the uh, the other lead in. Um, where the story that was planted last episode has been printed. Uh, so what do you think of uh, what do you think of Merrick this episode? I really like seeing Merrick. What what I love about Merrick is in the, is he is such a gormless character. He is so not self-absorbed, but he is so like unaware seemingly of what's going on in a very different way from Farnham, where Farnham's a guy who's constantly on the outside, but he wants to right. be on the inside so badly. Merrick just is kind of always in his own little world and he doesn't really get he 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 doesn't he he, he is too stupid to be threatened by elsewhere engine. Like he is too, he is too completely naive and unaware of like what's going on and who these people are that he will just stand and scream in Al Swearengen's face. And he's the only person in camp who will do that. Not because he's he's brave, but just because for some reason he doesn't get who Al is. Or what he's capable of. Yeah. And, 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 and he kind of likes being in on the conspiracy now, all of a sudden he's like, Oh yeah, we're on the same side, you know, and Alice really <laughs> pulled him in like it's us versus them, you know. Um, I will say, which is not a total lie. I mean, he's, you know, telling the truth. He's like, they're going to use these tools, so we should use them, you know, and it's it's a line of argumentation that gets used in the real world. Um, you know, it's it's not per se ethical, but, you know, it's a thing that happens. Um, I will say, though, I don't think he's, uh, I think it is naivete. I don't think it's like, what I was going to say, the difference for me between Farnham and, and Merrick is that Merrick is clearly actually quite a a bright person he's just very naive and sort of um uh yeah i unaware. shouldn't have said stupid no that's not what i meant yeah he you know is, what i mean he, I, gormless is the word i used initially and i think that's you stick with that one that's a better <laughs> word yeah fair enough yeah no i think that's definitely true he just um and he like you know he barges you know barge first of all he comes across the um the walkway which you know that was gonna be that was inevitable um, it comes down the main stairs, stairs which we see just before uh, Al yells at uh, Johnny to get off of, because clearly it's like that's where Al comes down, right? Like it's, it's <laughs> um, his uh, his uh, the way he makes an entrance. So when when uh, Merrick comes through, first of all, announcing to everyone that the two places are connected, which he said, let's you know not tell everyone that, and then is talking about this you know planted story and al has to immediately be like yeah let's not talk about that to everybody uh, <laughs> wow um and uh yeah no it just uh, it's, it's good and 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 you're right you know he's just willing to to face down al for uh without any real concern and he does this regularly right even to sigh 
even yeah. after Sai sends the goons to to mess up the uh, his uh, his office, um, he's still defiant, um, which is kind of admirable in like a weird self destructive sort of way. Merrick to me, and this just occurred to me, what like who what this archetype is? Yeah, he is like the West Wing liberal who thinks that if he if if he says the right things and he has the best <laughs> retort, like he can win and he can win in any situation. Well, it's like well if we if we just defeat them with logic and and civility, then then, <laughs> then, then we'll, we'll win. Like, yeah. How could we lose? We have all the tools at our disposal, and it's like that's that's who Merrick is, and why I am so amused by him. I think. I think I I think that's a fair a fair uh, estimation. Um, and yeah, it still gets pulled in by these, uh, these corrupting forces. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, so yeah, so, so there's this story, um, which, uh, what does that provoke? What comes out of that, right? Oh, so it's a conversation about the, um, uh, about the territories, right? With, with Seth. Um, and, and that also brings in the, this whole, um, connection with, um, uh, what's his name? The the Russian telegram operator. Blas Blazanov. Blazanov, yeah. Um, so yeah, Isringhausen. Uh, there's like sort of a so we get the answer to last week's episode, which we weren't really sure how this plan was supposed to play out, and I can't yeah. tell if this is what was supposed to happen or not, but it seems to have worked. Yeah, it seems like it just sort of like comes about without Al, without any intention on Al's part. But well, it's so not clear it, if he he intentionally. Like intentionally, sorry, went to go and speak to uh, Alma to try and provoke this whole situation. That's true. I guess that's that's maybe what we're meant to understand. So let's like just just to break down. I'm looking at the summary now. <laughs> Earlier in this episode, he gets a letter from Alma, uh, who has re- it says in the summary who has realized that she has betrayed their plan by letting it slip that she knows Isringhausen works for the Pinkertons. Al surmises that Miss Isringhausen's wire, which she sent earlier in the episode again, reported this to her bosses. Right. And Miss Isringhausen acknowledges this to be true, but adds that she assumed the bidding on Al's loyalty was still open. And at this point, Al says that she he offers her five thousand dollars and implicitly uh, her survival uh, to sign the sign the confession and leave town. Right. So this yeah this series of events was a little confusing to me yeah i i think well it was, it was less confusing to me than last episode when they were trying to explain the whole confession thing that was, well that, that was, was confusing and like that that the plot that they laid out last episode made sense to me it was al's motivations that were kind of a mystery it is the way that this unravels in this episode i wasn't quite clear because because again this is an example of of stuff happening off screen like we don't see this letter we don't really know like Al, we see alma give the letter to to uh ellsworth to, well she to, she gives it to ellsworth who i guess gives it to dan to de- to deliver to al um yes. and i'm just trying like this idea yeah so she i don't know i, I like i i understand what has what has come of this plan but well, basically the, yeah he, he basically says to to um isringhausen that uh and i had to choose the longest possible name for her didn't they so that way we can say it every time <laughs> um to to that, um, uh, that if third parties come in, i.e. the Pinkertons or whoever the the Garrett family comes in to, to replace um, uh, uh, Alma on this this claim, that it's going to end up in the hands of people who are going to put Al's interests at risk 
and Al then therefore is um, inclined not to do the deal because it's going to cost him a lot more than what Isringhausen is offering him. Um, and that sort of pretext to then threaten her and say, I'm going to basically you'll die if you don't just take my offer and leave. <laughs> so, you yeah, know, like I, it is, it's how this comes about that, that confused me. It's this, it's, it's this thing with the letter. Cause obviously Al was never going to work with the Pinkertons. He was never going to go through on this plan with Miss with Isringhausen. Like th- that, makes sense to me. And what we were, con- what we were, uh, thinking about last episode is why he seems, why he seemed to be working with her when we know that that is against his beliefs and his interest. Right. Um, I don't remember when Alma let slip that she knew Isringhausen worked for the Pinkertons. Was that in their conversation last week? Uh, was it in her I think conversation that's- to... With Alma. with Isringhausen because they talked either last week or the week before. Alma Alma and Isringhausen, you're saying? Yeah. Um. No, but uh, I don't think so. But I mean, Al made it clear to Alma that that was the case. So I I think it must have happened in that conversation because the whole point of and again like well, this is just this is this I think this is just the two of us trying to figure out what the hell actually happened. <laughs> I think what happened is that Alma in that conversation, and I don't remember, let slip to Isringhausen or implied that she knew that Isringhausen worked for the Pinkertons. I think she implies that ma- she knows she's like not who she says she is. Yeah, which, which is maybe what the implication, which is enough implication. I guess. Yeah, which is which to her to her mind, she thinks that she has revealed to Isringhausen that she has been working with Al. Right. So she writes to Al basically saying, I think Isringhausen knows that we're working together. Right. Um. And Al kind of, I guess, assu- guesses that this is what Isringhausen was Sending reporting the to her, about, right. to he her puts bosses that Alma together, knows. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay. I think I have this all straight. <laughs> People listening it to this. It was just that I didn't remember when Alma had said that. And I think that must have been in that conversation. People listening to this right now who like have seen the show like a hundred times. I'm are, so sorry. Are, like, I love are, this show. I'm are really like, how trying. do you not understand this? It's really not that hard. Basically what happened is Isringhausen, right? Please be nice. <laughs> Please be nice to me. Please be nice to us on Reddit. We, we love our listeners so much. We're we, trying. We actually, we, we actually genuinely do. We, we talk about it a lot off offline, never on because, uh, less, <laughs> less uh, you get full of yourselves. No, we're right. very withholding on, on the recording. <laughs> Extremely. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah. Um, I think the last section, uh, well, okay. There's the bank scene. Um, where it seems that despite the building tension of that, which is really just awkwardness, of um, of Martha inviting Alma to come to the bank, which seems like it might be in bad faith, but actually is in good faith, because again, she's, she's in contrast with the last time we saw Martha, uh, she's trying to mend bridges. She's trying to mend bridges yeah. with, um, with Seth, by, with the whole lunch thing that William suggests. Um, She's uh, by bringing him lunch uh, at work um, and she's trying to start off on a better foot with uh, Alma. So when Alma shows up sort of ready to fight, uh, she's sort of taken aback when Martha's like, no, genuinely, I think this is going to be really good for the camp. And Alma's like, oh, well, I'm glad that you're running this school. And they're like, <laughs> cool. And then they sort of shake hands. Um and uh, yeah, so it's kind of nice to see them not at odds um, because for all of the fun that tension or awkwardness brings, 
Um, it is also like a well, like a you know the love triangle is like a old old trope, which works can work. Um, but you know there's only so much to be mined there, and I think that this will put them on new narrative ground in into new narrative territory. Um, yeah, and now there's a bank uh, to which Trixie puts. I don't know if we're supposed to know that she had this gold nugget from somewhere else. It feels familiar. Like she might have picked that up in season one or something. I don't know. I yeah, can't I remember. So, yeah. Um, but I don't recall. Uh, but she makes the first deposit into the bank, which is now going to be part of the camp. And what I wanted to say before, and I think I sort of spoiled it in a previous episode, which I didn't mean to, uh, that Alma backs the bank, which we've learned last episode, I think, or, or previously. Um, that uh, when I was looking up the historical context, Alma uh, Garrett, again, was not a real person, so she didn't act. The bank, in terms of histor- historicity, there was a bank. It was run out of uh, 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 Saul and Seth's hardware store, or it was run by them, or something like that. Um, but Alma was not the financial backer uh, for the bank. I don't know where they got the money from or the capital for it, but um, it didn't. It didn't come from her. Um, but I think I, I think I, I said that in trying to talk about Alma's historicity, and I was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Um, in any case, there you have it. Now we've got a bank in the town. It's starting to look like a real, uh, a real place to live. Well, speaking of capital, I do want to talk about this scene from which the episode gets oh, its title. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, so Seth and Charlie have go, are going to interrogate Mose about the murder of his brother, uh, and Mose is sticking to his story that his brother was, I guess, pointing a gun at his own stomach and it accidentally went off and, well, he, uh, Seth's, he doesn't really have much of a defense, right? His whole defense no, is, he, he's not saying he's keeping is, his mouth shut completely. Well, it's, it's fuck yourself and don't act entitled, whatever the hell that means, um, yeah. which he just keeps repeating over and over again. Uh, to uh, to Seth and Charlie, like, like show me your warrant, basically. But it's not even as nuanced as that. It's just don't act entitled to the information that you're trying to seek as investigators and you know persons of the law. Uh, <laughs> like, it's truly a bizarre defense. Um, yeah, and it's a uh, uh, it's mentioned briefly here also uh, when Wolcott tries to catch Seth um, on his way out. Uh, that uh, that that voiceover um, letter reading last episode where that guy was fleeing from the um, the overseer person uh, and gets shot that that's that really happened it well of course it happened but that it happened and we should care about it because now Wolcott wants to report that this guy was killed um, which I did not think we were going to follow up on that yeah me neither that montage <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's not clear why Wolcott seems really intent on this. Uh, and it's not clear why that uh, why that is. Um, and I, I, this episode feels like a part one um, is really what I've been it wanting really to say does, yeah. for some time. It, it well, it's it's really similar to the season premiere because the season premiere also had that kind of, you know, ramping up of tension in the editing to this kind of blowout moment at the end, and then it was left unresolved. Um, and it's funny that it has the same director. I actually was going to say, you know, uh, we were talking about how, um, you know, uh, with timings and how uh, this episode plays, well, plays with time sort of in some ways. Um, exactly. The, the season premiere is these two episodes that happen over the course of a single day. Um, also sort of doing something with time there that the other episodes are not as clear about. Um, and this whole episode seems to take place over the course of, I think, like a morning, maybe into the early afternoon. Um, yeah. But on a single day, clearly, and over the course of just a couple of hours at most, maybe an hour, I don't know, it's really clear. Um, 
so yeah so I, I completely agree and it does feel like this part one where first of all there's the conclusion which is sort of a cliffhanger um but also like Wolcott wants to speak to Seth and that's something that's never followed up on the episode right it's it's just brought up a few times and it seems to be his next move but then we never see that like sort of uh answer you know the call but no answer scene um so you know obviously next episode we'll I assume we'll, we're going to get whatever wherever that's going um but anyway yes leaving that aside uh going back to this uh this feud between um well the 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 interrogation of Mose which turns into a conflict between Charlie and Wolcott so there's this great moment where um Charlie's basically talking about oh you you sold yourself out and it's it's going to be your head next um and and how could you how could you do that and uh Wolcott's response is basically like what are you some kind of marxist what are you talking at? Like, this is how, this is business. Um, and I thought that was really funny because it's this, it's this moment where Walcott is, is, you know, flexing on Charlie a little bit because Walcott is obviously, you know, much more, he's very educated right. and uh, he is, he is flexing his knowledge basically he's saying, oh, have you read Hume? Right. Have you, are you a disciple of Karl Marx? Yep. Which, you know, Charlie obviously isn't, but that doesn't mean that Charlie can't have this, can't come to the same conclusions as those people and hold those same beliefs. Well, um, it's, it's so, so first of all, he says, um, it's again, it's, it's this critique of, of corporatism, of capitalism, whatever you want to, whatever, I mean, specifically capitalism is invoked in this scene, um, that as Wilcott's trying to report that this guy fleeing was shot by one of the overseers, um, Charlie says amalgamation and capital, uh, or it's all just amalgamation and capital, which is something that he's heard somewhere. Um, and the implication being that, you know, again, profits or the company matter more than people's lives, which is obviously something Wilcott and Hearst believe, um, or at least that's how they act. Um, and when, again, yeah, as you said, uh, when Wilcott challenges that, he, he says, um, you know, he references Hume, who is uh, an early contributor to to a lot of different philosophical theories, but also or, or ideas, but also um, some early economic market-based uh, uh, concepts that are sort of related to c- capitalism, but are, you know, it was sort of related to Smith, but a bit different. Um, Smith being one of the, like, founding ideologues of, or or, or, or uh, uh, scholars, or whatever you want to call, I don't know what his, you know, f- uh, official title was, um, of, of capitalism, right? Adam yeah. Smith. Famous for the, uh, the idea of the invisible hand. Right, exactly. And then Marx, obviously, being, you know, communist manifesto we're, and all that. we're familiar so, with his work right <laughs> and so so like these are you know economic thinkers basically is the point of this but being like you know like sorry which uh which school of thought do you subscribe to because you clearly aren't read up you know like mm-hmm. uh and it's this this is very yeah, right it's this very condescending moment and charlie's just ready to kill this guy and seth tries to dig again to figure out what the hell happened in the thoroughfare between uh Wolcott and uh 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 Charlie, but um, does not find out uh, Dort or, or Charlie's still keeping mum on that. And it's actually, it, it yeah. reinforces this point that Seth still has no idea, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Seth is, is often very clueless, I guess. But yeah, I, I really did, I like this moment because it is so familiar to me, the way Wolcott acts in this scene. Yeah. Of like, 
someone is criticizing, someone is coming up with the very obvious and very reasonable critique of like, hey, it's not cool that you value money more than human lives. <laughs> like, that's that's not OK. And, if, and the response is like, oh, well, have you read Adam Smith? I don't <laughs> think so. And it's like, it's, it's hilarious. It's like, that's, 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 that's still how people act today. That's oh, how yeah. commentators treat this very, like, not e- like you couldn't even call that a socialist idea. That's just a very basic, like humane response to the way that Wolcott behaves. You can't like, I'm not, you can't even call Charlie a socialist really, or a communist. No, that's not just at a, all. That's just the way that a, a human being should think is like, yeah, you should care more about money than people's lives and people dying. Like that's, that's not okay. Yeah. And I mean, it's basic to be like, well, you don't understand capitalism. Yeah. Right. Either. Exactly. Um, or that, you know, just that you, sh- you know, it's also just basic theory of like labor, right. That, you know, you, you yeah. know, the worker like deserves like, <laughs> which is not, I don't think, obviously it's a big part of, you know, uh, socialist thought, but it's not, it's not unique to socialism per se that, like, well, maybe it is. I don't know. But that's a whole other philosophical discussion. But yes, <laughs> I agree that Charlie would probably not. Schisms. You know, he wouldn't <laughs> call himself a socialist. I'm sure. But the idea that you know he cares about what people that people don't die when they're, you know, for the sake of the company is like somehow radical. Um, is is just. Uh, but I mean, again, it is, and it has to be to to woke up because we know that he demonstrably doesn't care about people's lives in the context mm-hmm. of, uh, of of making money and um it we know this both from his uh from charlie's anecdotes and then also from you know what we've seen so far of what he's actually literally done uh, to get people murdered and then does in this scene later on yeah all for the sake of protecting the uh, you know i it's not really clear why he maybe it's just because he irritates him um but uh he gets uh he ends up getting mo's shot of course it's really mo's fault i suppose but uh, he gets Mo's shot uh, mostly just because he was irri- he was irritating more that he would um, potentially you know cause more headache in the future um, for for Wolcott. Yeah, and I mean also you know we should mention that he gets he and Hurst really have full control of the claim now, right? Yep. Like it's it's there's no they don't have to pay him they don't have to pay out to a dead man. Very true, very true. That is a hundred percent true. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, of course now now the the road is clear. Uh, for them and um and they don't yeah they don't have to worry about uh, uh any sort of other consequences with with Mose. um and then just to reassert his dominance over the situation uh Wolcott makes a very direct threat to Sai here which is more than he's I think ever done before where he says to Sai that he could have Lee burn down the whole Bella Union uh yeah which is really first of all that it makes a whole different paints a whole different picture of who Lee is right Mm-hmm. Like he's not just the guy running things on the other side of camp. He's also like a like like a uh, assassin or something. Well, what the hell? <laughs> it's he's like, an enforcer. An enforcer. To a degree yeah. Didn't really get. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, I don't know what that's going to come to, but uh, Sai's not happy about this arrangement. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think he's becoming angry. <laughs> he was already irritated. He had he only had to look after Mose and make sure he was happy because of what Wolcott wanted, basically. Right. And to try and get some money out of him. So that was annoying him in the first place. And then, you know, he escalates this thing, gets gets Moe's killed. Um, And then uh, now uh, Sai has to deal with threats and being, you know, further disempowered, which is, you know, not what he was going for in this arrangement. Um, So I don't I I, I sense some sort of conflict between Sai and uh, Wolcott or Hearst or, you know, whatever the those powers are in the future. 
Yeah, I can't see Sai being very happy with this arrangement anymore. I mean, it's not getting much out of it at this point. I mean, I suppose he's still <laughs> yeah. getting money, but yeah. But I mean, I, again, it's this like short sightedness. Like, what did you think it was going to do helping these people? You know what kind of person. If you know what kind of person Wolcott is, you know what kind of person Hearst probably is, and you know mm-hmm. that the that like nothing can really come of this that's going to like turn out well for you. Um, but you know he still started, you know, decided to to uh, throw his lot in with uh, with this this group. I don't know what he was thinking. Anyway, we'll see. Um, so yeah, this last scene. Uh, I guess uh, so. William is uh, riding the bike with. Uh, with to, where he, he's trying to ride the bike with Tom Nuttall. Steve comes in, Steve the drunk, mm-hmm. um, and uh, which is always a, a a bad sign at this point uh, that some 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 violence is about to happen. Not in the way I thought was going to happen. I thought maybe he would do something uh, sort of awful to to William, but he's actually trying to be a relatively decent person for like five minutes. Um, and uh, at the same time, we have the horse uh, that's about to be uh, neutered. And we have um, again Woolcut uh, escalating things in the Bella Union and demanding that he see uh, Seth. Um, and then the horse breaks free, uh, sort of busts out of the stable, runs across the thoroughfare, and knocks uh, William uh, unconscious. Um, maybe or maybe not, you know, like fatally wounding him. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if somebody can really survive being knocked over by a horse. Like that's pretty. De- and you know, he's like this little kid. Um, but yeah, and that's uh, that's how the episode ends. You know, it just occurred to me, like we we talked about William, obviously, you know, R.I.P. Very sad. Um, <laughs> we don't know if he's dead. We don't know if he's dead. I guess. But it just it just occurred to me thinking of how this scene plays out that, that you know Steve gets injured too. His he says his back is broken. That's what he says. Yeah. And this is, you know, I don't know if you could say really it's Hostetler's fault. But if anyone is at fault, it is Ooh. it is him and 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 Fields, and obviously those those three have have oh. been at odds before. I didn't even so think I about can the only imagine. Yeah, there's going to be some uh, terrible consequence. And while Seth stopped it before, he might not this time because of. Well, if you the what's interesting what's you know there's not much to talk about, but I do think it's interesting that specifically Hostetler says something about how the moon isn't right for doing this this neutering, right. but we have to do it anyway because we need you know, we need to get this out quick if we want the money. So that's the reason they're doing this. And, you know, I don't know the medical basis for the moon be needing to be at a, a certain I phase. Mood. Now, did he, does it say mood? Cause I'm pretty sure in the synopsis, it says moon. Does it say moon in the it, synopsis? It, it says, says moon. moon in the synopsis is moon. I had, I thought I'd heard mood, but maybe I was wrong because the horse was sort of all over the place, but it might be. Moon. Yeah. That, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. Maybe it's a typo in the synopsis. No, 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 I, no. If it's in the synopsis, I'm going to trust it. HBO knows what they're talking about. They are the all knowing prophets of uh, Deadwood, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I just, I had heard it as mood. So thank you for correcting that. Cause I, I had no idea. Um, but yeah, but it goes back to this idea, the idea of amalgamation and capital, right? Like they know it's like, it's not the sensible thing to do this right now, but they true. need the money. True. True. And so they, it is specifically like, again, you know, we, it's hard to assign blame in this situation, I think, but they specifically make a choice to do this when it's not sensible to do it. And the horse breaks free and, yep. and two people are badly injured. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we are, you know, I'm, yeah, that's really concerning. I hadn't even thought about this um, because these two have been at the, the, the bad end of the stick uh, more than a few times at this point. And yeah, well, yeah, that's something I look forward to. 
And I mean that in the complete opposite of looking forward to. Um, <laughs> sort of way. It's going to be horrible. Um, so, yeah, I think that's uh, that's the episode. Yeah, it is. All right. Uh, next week. Next Advances None Miraculous. <laughs> oh, direct, directed by Dan Minahan, okay. who is directing the movie. All right. Well, we'll, we'll pay so, close yeah. attention then. That is not a, that is, as far as the ending of this episode, that is not a, uh, it does not inspire optimism, that title. No, um, it doesn't. And, uh, uh, well, I won't say anything, but um, <laughs> I won't say anything yet. Okay. Well, anyway, next week, advances non-miraculous, uh, but hopefully we will advance. And uh, a little bit of a forewarning, our last, uh, because we were trying to, uh, we'll, we'll mention this again next week, just so people know. Um, but the very last two episodes of this ep- the season of Deadwood we'll do as a combined podcast so that we can finish by the time Game of Thrones starts, which is actually really soon. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to need to get this done so that we can move forward. So the last two episodes will be combined um, into a single, maybe slightly longer podcast. We'll see how, uh, we'll see how it shakes out. All right. All right. All right.